have to re-explain to me the location that we're going and its meaning. Well, there was a story in Tom Baker's first season yeah. called the Sontaran Experiment, which wasn't supposed to exist because there was supposed to be a six-part story set entirely in the studio. Okay. But the producers looked at what they were doing and said, why do we want six parts set entirely in the studio? That's going to bore people rigid. Why don't we organise some location filming instead? And the way it works is, location filming that they can afford carries about a third of a story. Yeah. So they said, well, actually, why don't we do a four-parter in the studio and a two-parter entirely on location? So this story that was sort of written fairly late in the day then became Doctor Who's very first all-location story. That's right. And because it was an all-location story, they picked what is a really spectacular location and came down to Devon. I mean, you'll see when we get there. As soon as we turn the bend and you see it in front of us, you'll probably go, oh my God. <laughs> because if you watch the actual story, you don't really get an impression of how impressive it is. Because obviously they wanted to make it look like an alien world rather than, you know. Beautiful countryside of Devon. Exactly. So the, so the um, story itself doesn't really fully sell the location. So as soon as I knew you two were coming over, I thought, well, this is something you've got to see. Yeah. In fact, Paul Venezes was on Radio Free Scaro podcast last week. Oh, yes. And he was talking about coming down here to do a documentary feature for the new Blu-ray. Oh, yes. And he was saying himself how beautiful it is and how little it's changed since they filmed here because this is prehistoric. Yes. So it's been entirely unchanged for like thousands, if not millions of years. That's fantastic. So we are, well, we're actually recording, so this <laughs> conversation would probably go on there anyway, maybe, I don't know. But for the sake of it, you're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next however long, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to, I suppose I have to turn the radio on. <laughs> And I am in the car, hence the terrible quality of the audio, assuming this is even good enough to use. But I am in the car with Rob Lloyd. It is a pleasure to be here in your car. <laughs> Fantastic. And Caitlin. Oh, hello. <laughs> Rob's fiance. Congratulations, you two, by the way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Who just made it official just before you came over to the UK for your tour? Yeah, yesterday it was a, a month ago. So yeah, we're being all official now. All uh, preps now for the for the wedding at the end of next year. So we're all planning that, and uh, we're all 
We're very happy and excited, aren't we? Very exciting. It's all happening. Wow. <laughs> well, this is good, then. You've actually... Uh, do you mind talking about this when we're recording? <laughs> don't mind at all. Okay. Because, I mean, often... I don't know whether this is the same in Australia as it is in the UK. But in the UK, the most common thing tends to be we'll get engaged and then we'll think about a wedding somewhere down the road. <laughs> and people can be engaged for, like, years and years and never get around to the wedding. But you actually got engaged with a view to actually sort of the marriage itself. Yeah, we're both pretty much dirty, dirty planners when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to our relationship. We've sort of like been we've already had dis many discussions about the type of proposal that both of us are into. We've had discussions about how we want our wedding to be, where we want to live in the next couple of years, how many kids we want. We've been quite forward with our planning. So this right. is just the, so a lot of people going, wow, you guys are organizing it. Ah, we've had this plan for ages. <laughs> we keep getting told how stressful wedding planning can be. Yeah. So our logic was let's get the things that should be difficult or, you know, in, in want of a better phrase, stressful out of the way so that all the fun things are left. So we've locked down right. the menu, we've locked down some food, we've locked down, you know, we've got a wow. rough guest list roughly planned out. So we're like, let's get the more difficult things out of the way and then we can just, just enjoy the remaining bits. Oh, fantastic. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, I tell you what though, you've both kind of got a head start because you're both used to the stage. Mm -hmm. And the thing about the stage is, it's not just about being on the stage and being in front of an audience, but it's also about planning and pulling things together, isn't it? Yeah, preparation and you yeah. Know, figuring it. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, you can run it like a show going, okay, we've got our venue, we've got the, the players worked out, we need to work on improvising, um, rehearsing and getting costumes and, yeah. and props. It does feel a lot like <laughs> catering, we've got to have catering for intervals. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but just the basic thing of being an organiser, you've obviously, both of you, I would imagine, have sort of organisational brains, as it were. I can understand how big and stressful it could be for, for lack of a better word, normal people. <laughs> yeah. Who just, you know, who aren't used to this type of thing. They go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to think about food and, 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 and flowers and displays and all this type of stuff. And it can get quite exciting for people doing it for the first time. And for us, we're trying to still find that, you know, it's unique and it's exciting because it's our wedding. Yeah, yeah. The, the basics are very much stuff we've done before with the you know hundreds of shows we've done in the past. Wow. Right. Shall we talk some Doctor Who since that's what people are expecting, I guess. <laughs> get to the money. Come on, JR, get <laughs> to the money. Well, we didn't have anything planned, but and I was just gonna have a general conversation about Doctor Who if we found time to do this. And obviously this is the thing. Time is a bit short, which is why we're doing it like this. <laughs> But we've had a bunch of news stories in the last 24 hours. It's amazing how we go like we go with nothing for a couple of weeks or even a couple of months, and then little bits drop here and there. That seems to be a snowball effect. Well, we've had nothing for months about the new series. Nothing. And then within 24 hours, we get a clip <laughs> and the news about the new composer. Now, do you think the news about the new composer has been released in reaction to the leaked clip? Because the clip is not official release. Well, not officially officially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they've gone, do you feel as if this is a response by the BBC to go, oh, okay, well, well, this is unofficial. Let's give you some official news. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the news was probably going to come out at some point in the next few weeks. 
But I think the fact that there's been a leak, they probably said, let's put an official news story out so we can get people talking about that. Exactly, know? exactly. I think you're absolutely right. And in any other show, this is what I love about Doctor Who. I love about Doctor Who, we get so obsessed with the little things. Yeah. That other shows, like, take for granted. Like, we... We can't wait to find out about who's been cast as the new lead actor. Then we start talking about what are they going to wear? What's their costume going to be? Let's talk yeah. about fashion. And so in any other TV show, if they release the information about who is composing the music, any other TV show you go, all right, okay, we don't really care that much. But within exactly, the fandom, yeah. it's a massive thing. Every element of the show, if they release who the best boy was or the production you know, the, the production assistant, we'd go, oh, okay, this is a good decision. Let's find out about their past history. Yeah, and they'd be all over IMDb <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> trying to find out what this person's worked on before. Okay, let's talk about the composer then, whose name, and then we're in the car, and I had a busy night last night and a busy morning this morning, and I've not committed his name to memory. Neither so. have I. I'll have to look it up. We can do some, we can uh, do some, some uh, snappy editing so I can bring up his official name. <laughs> his official name as opposed to his... <laughs> as opposed to Doctor Who composer. Yeah. He'll be known as by all other fans of Doctor Who for the next 17 years. I've got to tell you a secret, though. I don't do any editing on the Blue Box podcast, <laughs> so I'll probably forget to cut this out. <laughs> so this entire bit will be on the podcast. It's very subtle Googling is making its way in. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a brave new world. And then people, people will forgive us for forgetting the name. New Doctor Who composer. Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, uh, Sigan Akinola. Akinola. Sigan Akinola is our new composer. Well, he's worked mostly on documentaries, from what I can make out, when he's worked in television. Yes, as most of you, blah, 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 this is Radio Times, the official Radio Times statement. Uh-huh. Uh, he's an alumni of the uh, Royal uh, Birmingham Conservatory, a rising star among British composers. Previously, he scoring programs like uh, Black and British, A Forgotten History, yep. uh, The Human Body. So yeah, two-part serial, Expedition Volcano. So yeah, mostly uh, documentary stuff. I listened to the soundtrack for Expedition Volcano last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how is it? Well, it's obviously he's not writing for that, the kind of stuff that he'll be writing for Doctor Who. It's um, some of it, I guess, because we're talking mountains and stuff. Yeah. Some of it was very slow, very subtle, sort of, the kind of music that you might expect if you was a program about glaciers or something, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yes. Very, um, if, if you know Sigur Ross, is the kind of stuff that you might expect to find, oh, ooh, I've just passed that turn. <laughs> <laughs> I should shut up. <laughs> right, I'm going to have to turn around and come back. That's fine. So, um, yeah, it's the kind of, some of the tracks were like that. Some of the tracks... Quite a few of the tracks were very much more like Murray Gold's theme from the end of Doomsday. You know the the really famous yes, one yeah, where yeah, yeah. Um, Billy Piper's finding her way to the beach. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was quite a bit like that. That sort of pace and that sort of um, uh, composition. Well, that's what the next question I was going to ask. How does it compare to a traditional? Murray Gold Doctor Who piece because Murray Gold has been uh, you know praised for his 
powerful pieces of music, yeah. but also criticised for his, you know, um, you know, overt pieces of music that is always letting you know that the music is there. Yeah, the very moment. melodic. Yeah. This is a bit less melodic. Okay. But this was for a program about mountains. Of course. So uh, <laughs> it's hard to tell. I mean, this was all I had time to listen to. I didn't have time to uh, listen to anything else. So it's hard to tell how we'll... Because scoring for drama, you know, the Murray Gold one from the end of Doomsday is an exception because yeah. that's a piece of music that drives on a rhythm. Yes. Composing for drama, you don't usually compose around a rhythm. You compose around melodies, and you use rhythms, I guess, when you've got, say, an action piece. Yes. So the more famous, the more recognisable Doctor Who pieces of music, they all will all go around a rhythm, but most of the music is based around melodies instead. And it's hard to tell from this what his melodic music's going to be like, because a lot of this was... was um, music based around rhythms. Well, it's very much a case of what Murray Gold has done is kind of like what they do in movie scores, especially franchise scores. Exactly, yeah. Is that they create pieces of music for certain characters and also... Situations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and so Murray Gold did develop, you know, your pieces for all the companions and for, for Nemesis as well, Nemesis as well. Yeah. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see that and it's hard to judge you know, like trying to when an actor's cast as the doctor everyone goes back to look at their other work and, yeah. and you know and you can't always judge from you that. can't judge from that so as we'll come to in a few minutes exactly exactly so it's very hard to say what his music going to be like but if you were to try and second guess you'd have to say it might be a bit more low key and a bit more rhythmical rather than melodic I'm hoping it might be like the most iconic soundtrack of all time, JR. I'm hoping it to be like Death to the Daleks. <laughs> I'm really hoping they bring in from, 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 from. I think that, you know, that's uh, what we need right now. Yes. 2018 is a revolutionary type of music like that. It was ahead of its time back in uh, yeah, the 70s yeah. with Death to the Daleks. But 2018, I think we've caught up. <laughs> he also, as well as going to Birmingham, to learn about just composition in general, I guess. He went on to um, a, a specific film school, I don't know if this is still in Birmingham or elsewhere, to learn about film composition specifically. Why is there a road coming on? There was no road coming off where I could turn around. <laughs> oh, actually, here's a road going off. Or is it? I'm not sure now. Oops, I'm in the wrong gear. Oh, it. Damn it, I've missed it. It would have... No, it wouldn't have taken us around, would it? <laughs> this is going to sound great on the podcast. I can come off here, here and go. turn around. Fingers crossed. So, yeah. So, a slide break there. Uh, yeah, so he's, he has also done film composition specifically. So, despite the fact that his TV stuff... Oh, this isn't going to let us go around. What an adventure. <laughs> yeah, this is not going quite to plan. So I guess I'll just get back on the road. <laughs> I'll tell you what I could do. I don't know if this will help. Is I can bring up a map. With that. Oh, that doesn't look like a very good crossing, but... 
Well, let's give it a go and have a look and see what it's like. Because at this time of day, the road's not as busy as it would ordinarily be. So if I take a left and then another left, possibly I might be able to get back onto the other side of the road. Are we anywhere near Dartmoor? Did I hear something Dartmoor? Yeah, we're near Dartmoor. You'll know when we get to Dartmoor. Because the thing about Dartmoor... Have you heard of the Dartmoor ponies? No, I've heard of the, the hound. <laughs> there's also across the entire moor there is a breed of horse which they call the Dartmoor Pony and right, I guess I'm going oh, no entry it says, oh this is brilliant <laughs> just brilliant there's a breed of horse called the Dartmoor I guess I'll go back out and just go back down to the next proper one Next proper crossing point. That's probably just the easiest thing. Otherwise, we could be driving around these back roads for ages, <laughs> couldn't we? There's a breed of horse called the Dartmoor Pony, which exists only on Dartmoor. Uh, but they, because they roam free, and because there's a danger that they'll, um, because when you're on Dartmoor, one of your instructions as you enter is to drive carefully because of the ponies. Yes. But, I mean, if they made it down to places like this, they'd all be getting killed. So. Wherever you enter Dartmoor, you will drive across the cattle grid to stop the horses getting out. Right. So, um, oh, damn it, there's a lorry. He's not going to pull over for us. Right, we're on. Oh, look, if we'd have carried on, <laughs> the next turn is just a couple of hundred yards down the road. That was fun. Did you have fun, Kevin? Oh, I feel like I'm learning about the countryside. <laughs> So yeah, you'll know when we get to Dartmoor, because we'll go over a cattle grid. <laughs> and shortly after that, well, we're going to drive, well, we're not going to drive through, but we're going to drive on the outskirts of a town called Buffy Tracy, which is actually a really nice place. And if we'd have had all day, we would have stopped in at Buffy Tracy. But we don't have all day, so there's not really time for that. Sadly, I have to go and take my show for tonight. Yeah, I, I'm really a bit naughty taking off, taking you off to do this, but I, I think I hope it'll be worth it. Oh, very much so. And also, if it is, if it wasn't a show that I haven't been doing for the last seven years, that I don't know, like the back of my hand. Yeah, yeah. But you've still got to uh, get to the new venue and make sure you're set up for the new venue, haven't you? Yeah. We, well, we went and had a look and just to see where it was and what it looks like, but yeah. Tech starts a bit later on today, so we'll uh, run through the show, check all the lighting and projection and sound, and um, just get used to the space. So when I present it on tonight, looks like I'm doing, looks like I know what I'm doing. Right, how on earth do I get back on? There's no signs here to tell me. Well, we're at Ashburton. There must surely be. This ain't going to plan at all, <laughs> is it? There's no signs whatsoever. No, ah, right. there's a sign up there. English Road. Oh, and now I've stalled the blooming car. How embarrassing. On air. <laughs> right, sign for exit. That'll do us. This is going to be the most exciting podcast that anybody's ever listened to in the history of the universe. Yeah, Which is taking you on the journey with us. Yeah, exactly. So, I've. 
Oh yes, so when you go to a place, you've got specific acoustics and things like that. Yeah, and the uh, size of the stage and how to, you know, just get a feel for the space. So instead of just walking on and doing the show, figure out how I may have to change my blocking and movement and projection and... Yeah, yeah. The venues obviously vary really vastly on their technical, um, what they have as far as their lighting and all, all those sort of considerations well so Rob kind of has to adjust the show based on whatever the venue has access to yeah it's not just simply lights on and lights off I've got certain lighting states that I'd like to achieve yeah yeah I have yeah. the ability to so well the North Pole that you're going to in Exeter I believe is a pretty good venue that's what I've heard oh I tell you a little Doctor Who fact about <laughs> the North Pole yeah that you may or may not know um the, oh, I don't know what the expression is, technical director. Yeah. The, a a theatre will, I don't know, people listening will know this, but a theatre will often have um, somebody who's, uh, a person who's in charge of choosing what goes on. Yes. Choosing the shows, stuff like that. And many years ago, after he finished his course at Exeter University, the director at the Northcott Theatre was one Robert Sherman. Well, there you go. I did not know that. Yeah, so, uh, right, well I, see now we've got back on the road and we've not gone very far at all and it's telling me to go off for New Janaba. So this, I'm assuming this must be the right one for us, this will be where Tom Baker drove past with his broken collarbone. At some point during the making of the Sontaran experiment. Awesome. Did you know about that? About the broken collarbone? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. See, now I'm on a road I'm completely unfamiliar with. So, at some point, I'm looking for a sign that says Bubby Tracy. <laughs> well, this says Newton Abbott. Well, it's, we're still pretty early. We've got loads of time. Exactly. The drive back certainly isn't going to include all these details. <laughs> <clears throat> so we better keep talking, otherwise we'll get loads of dead air and people will be thinking, what earth's going on <laughs> if I don't get around to editing it? The clip then. What did you think? Oh, well, before we talk about the clip, what was your feeling, first of all, about having a woman doctor and about the announcement when we found out that we would? Look, I've, I've, I've been kind of hoping for a female doctor for quite some time I've always uh, I've been pushing even uh, even before Matt Smith was announced I've been on the uh, bandwagon of getting Helen McGrory one of my favorite actors oh, yeah. as as the doctor I thought she'd make an incredible doctor so I sort of campaigned for um, McGrory uh, 2011 McGrory 2013 um, so yeah it's it's Definitely something. There's no. I haven't had a stigma towards it like uh, like some fans have had. Yeah. Um, Did you ever like if you'd have been asked when you were say ten or twenty or third? Um, well, because uh, because I got into Doctor Who quite late. I got into Doctor Who when I was at university, so I never grew up with the whole um, uh, hiding behind the sofa thing. So right. um, by the time I got into it, I was aware of like uh, when Tom Baker was leaving. 
you know, John Nathan Turner did the whole push of maybe we'll go for a female doctor, yeah. has always been on the cards. I never really identified the doctor by his gender. I know a lot of, uh, there are some fans who, you know, imbue that into the doctor, so like what makes him special is, yeah, yeah. is, uh, is that he is a, a, a male role model for, 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 for young boys to show a different sign of um, masculinity. See, uh, I never got yeah. that point until people started bringing it up as a reason not to have a woman doctor. And so me as well, when I was there, I never saw that because when I was growing up, I, I did have, you know, male heroes who didn't fit the you know, masculine yeah. cliche. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes and stuff like that. Yeah. But a lot of my heroes as a, as a boy were were you know Princess Leia, Penny from Inspector Gadget, Alice from Alice in Wonderland. So exactly those type of it's characteristics that define my heroes, not their gender. not their yeah. gender. Yeah. So um, I've I've heard many people rail against it, and I've I've heard it. I can understand it from their point of view, but for me it was never a major issue, and especially because the Doctor is an alien from another planet, and it has been established within the modern canon that. You know, time lords can change their sex. Um, it's never been a, you know, it's never been a point for me. Well, I said a long time ago that initially, when the after, I, I suppose after Tenant, should we start thinking about maybe a woman, which was the fans rather than the production team? And if you had asked me at the time, I'd have said, I don't know if it would work. Nothing about the gender, but just about the change. Yeah. And so at the time, I'd have said, well, you know, personally speaking, if it was a woman, I don't think I'd be bothered. But I don't think it would be the same program. So I think, therefore, it's probably something that they won't and perhaps shouldn't do. Yeah. But then I thought about, well, what really are you saying there? And I thought to myself, well, actually, if you think about it, there's absolutely no reason to say that. Exactly. There's nothing that would change. And I, <clears throat> I'm not going to say who the actress was because that wouldn't be fair on her. But years ago, an actress who has worked on Doctor Who, I asked her if she would record for me so that I could put it on the podcast various bits of dialogue that had been said by various male doctors yeah. over the years. So that, because it's, I've always said 99.9% .9 of the Doctor's dialogue, ever since William Hartnell, quite easily come out of a woman's mouth and it wouldn't make any difference in the dialogue whatsoever. Exactly. So I was going to get her to do maybe 15 minutes of various bits of dialogue associated with all the various doctors and in the end she couldn't do it because she was just about to do an audio book where she would be playing as part of the dialogue one of the doctors and she thought it was a bit of too much of a conflict with that. <laughs> so it never happened. But I thought it was a nice idea. Yeah. And, uh, okay, let's talk about the clip. And from the clip, the dialogue that she has in that clip, apart from the one specific line, why did you call me madam? Yeah. I could very easily have imagined Matt Smith or David Tennant or Christopher Eccleston saying all those lines. Exactly. And there wouldn't have been any difference. No difference whatsoever. Um, and that's the remarkable thing. I mean, the, it's an odd, it's an odd beast the Doctor as a character, because when you've got characters throughout, uh, like within Shakespeare and stuff like that, um, uh, actors try and bring their own unique uh, 
stamp on the role, but trying yeah, to yeah. Parent focus on the character and how they can step as far away from themselves. So when you're playing Richard the Third, you want to be as far away from you. You want the hump, you want the voice, you want the tone, all that type of stuff is get as far away from your original per- persona yeah. to bring into that character. Same with um, same with I guess Sherlock Holmes. You you know you want to stay true to the essence of what you know Arthur Conan Doyle wrote and the essence and the elements are there. But and you're with, putting on a different personality. Yeah, but with the Doctor, um, what defines the character is um, it's the same person, but it's what your own individual personality that you bring to the role. So like when Patrick Troughton got the role, he's there going, well, I can do it in a turban, in a fake beard, do all this type of stuff to make me look unlike me. But they went, no, 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 we want to see you. Yeah, you're the reason. The reason you were cast is because you are so unlike William Hartnell, and we want to see as much of you as possible. So his scatterbrained delivery, his like improvisational nature was very much a case of Patrick Troughton as the actor or as the person. Yeah. Um, and John Pertwee brought a lot of his loves, his personality, his you know his love of gadgets, his his love of extreme sports, all that type of stuff that yeah. defined um, his Doctor. So it's about what the individual actor brings about their personality. And so we can see bits of that in just the 60 seconds that we got. You know, Jodie Whittaker yeah. is, Whittaker is a very outgoing, very lively, animated person in interviews and stuff like that. And so we can see that element of her Coming brought through, to life. Yeah. Because the roles that she's played and become famous for are very intense, very serious type of roles, like from Broadchurch. Where uh, she's putting on a personality. Yeah, where she's playing another character. But yeah. for this one, we can see a bit of her and her life and what I've loved in all her uh, red carpet interviews and stuff like that you've seen the spark this you know this northern cheekiness about her yes. that you know we want to bring to to the doctor well she's from not very many miles from where I'm from as I guess ah. <laughs> although I moved down here to Devon when I was eight so I've not been uh, you know local to there for well, I'm not saying how many years, but it might be the number that begins with a four. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and also, going back to Terence Dix said at one point, when you write the Doctor, you just write the Doctor and let the actor do it. Exactly. And we saw that in that clip, that the stuff about the tongue, everything else, oh, the um, what's your name, all this kind of business. That was exactly what you'd expect somebody like Tennant or... Smith or whoever to say, great, yeah, great stuff. The 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 rapid dialogue, the yeah. um, the quick changes of thought is very much a definition of the modern version of the Doctor. Um, yes, and in fact, going back to Tom Baker, because we saw basically a post regeneration. She said uh, half an hour ago I was the whitest Doctor, didn't she? Exactly. So we're basically talking within half an hour of the regeneration. So. You know, this, the first thing with Tom Baker and Star of Robot, where he... If she comes out in a Viking outfit, I'll be very, very <laughs> But then instantly when uh, Ian Marta walks into the room, you've got all these very rapid changes of yes. personality, haven't you? Yes, very much so. And it's good to, it's, it's good to see that. It's a bit of fun. And I love, I love the whole regeneration moment of, you know, we're trying to figure out how the Doctor will be. And it's mm. always played out with the Doctor there going, I don't know who I am. Exactly. I love the partial amnesia stuff. I've heard some 
complaints online, oh, this is just your standard post-regeneration. <laughs> and to be fair, yes, it is. Yeah. But there's a reason for that, and that's because every brand new doctor and every brand new showrunner has to get through that scene, really. Exactly. Capaldi went through that in deep breath. He had those you know, rapid changes and really crazy, weird stuff. And yeah. you know, Matt Smith did as well. And it wasn't until you know he stood out at the end of 11th hour in his outfit and went, hello, I'm the Doctor. This is the role I'm going to play. And the same with you know, Capaldi stepped out at the end of deep breath and went, you know, you know, um, yeah. not all of it's been good. <laughs> and Jodie will have that moment as well when you go, okay, I'll go all over the place and find out, you know, the highs and lows within this regeneration moment. And then she'll step out at the end of the episode and go, this is where we're going to go. And this is who I am. Yeah. Now, I've seen in several places, quite a few. I mean, I'm talking about social media and forums. And and this is like 24 hours since the cliff. Yeah. Or not much more than 24 hours since the cliff. And I've not seen a great deal because I've been running around for the last couple of days, but in several places on Facebook and on Gallifrey base, I've seen people coming out of the woodwork and saying, well, when they said there was going to be a woman as the next doctor, I was not a happy bunny and I didn't think it would be right. I didn't think she'd be able to do it. And I thought, this is not my doctor. And now I've seen the clip and well, I'm not totally convinced because we've just had you know, 52 seconds worth. <laughs> but for those 52 seconds, she was the doctor. And now this clip has opened my mind, ready yeah. to accept her when we get to see more of her. Just because of, yeah, yeah, we as Doctor Who fans love to, you know, project onto yeah. to the doctor character. And we go to show how much we know and how much we love. So a lot of people go, just for the initial casting of, oh, they're going to be a little bit four and five. Oh, I can see a bit of one. And, and 12 yeah. here but um, with Jody, we had no idea but now with the start of it just because of her her size yes. just the height of her automatic, automatically I'm going into okay well there's going to be a bit of Patrick there's going to be a bit of Sylvester yes. and I'm going ooh how interesting would that be I'm going no 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 don't do any projecting yet just wait just oh, wait yeah. to see that and from the clip you just go you know there's a good springboard for us to go well one of the things somebody said was a bit of uh Peter Davison and his sort of breathless delivery. Yes. And um, although I wasn't a fan of Peter Davison because of his breathless delivery, (laughs) I see what they were saying. There was a little bit of that sort of thing in there. But that's kind of a modern Doctor thing anyway. We have it in Time Crash where David Tennant says to um, Peter Davison, you were my Doctor. And actually, when he says it, you can see that part of that sort of breathlessness that sort of running into a room and yes. um, taking in everything around yeah, you and not exactly. being quite sure what to say or do is uh, just a little bit Peter Davison as well. I want to like it, but yeah, Davison brought in the whole element of bringing the danger back in and that you're not really yeah. sure if, you know, the doctor's going to be listened to or whether he's yeah, going yeah. to get out alive or anyone else is. So, um, and I guess with a woman doctor, because I mean, we can sort of try and say it's not going to make any difference as much as we can. It's obviously going to make something of a difference. And I guess that walking into a room and and sometimes owning the room because of your personality. Yeah. But at other times coming up against people who don't let you own the room because of the fact that you are a woman. Well, that's that, what, and that's that what will we, be a thing. That's what it's going to be great to deal with those 
you know, those people who have a preconceived idea of when someone walks into a space, whether they're male or female, how they treat them. Yeah. And so to see a female doctor go to the suffragettes era of, of England and see a, you know, a powerful character walk into a room where all the males there going, you're just meant to be subservient. And how will the doctor cope with that going, what? This has never happened before. Or yeah. I've never had to deal with this and how the doctor works through that. It's going to be amazing to see it. It's not going to be, oh, it's going to be all political. No, this is a fascinating character discovery. Yeah, let's how, see how the character copes yeah. in those situations. And this is an extra level of doctor who we've never been able to have before. So let's have it, bring it on. Yeah, so, so long. Um, I love the amount of young girls coming out and going, you know, for so long there was an era, especially the, the David Tennant era, a lot of female fans were going, who wouldn't want a, 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 a tall stranger to come and take your hand and go, come with me through time and space? Yeah. And now the dialogue's changed to be female fans going, wouldn't it be amazing to just travel through time and space and go wherever the hell you wanted? And yeah, so the, it's shifted now to going, we don't need to be taking someone's hand and being led through time and space. We can lead ourselves there. Yes. And so I like that power. I like that power that boys and girls can now have the opportunity to go. Well, this know, is yeah. I want to be. I want to be in control of the TARDIS. This has always been my thing. People who don't like the idea of this change have always said, "Well, you've always had a female lead alongside the male lead. Why did the roles need to switch?" And I've always said in response to that, "Well, the way it's always been set up is." The doctor has the keys to the TARDIS, and the woman is there at his invitation. Yeah, that is a hierarchy. And no matter how equal you might think the two actors, for example, are, it's a hierarchy of power. Exactly. And it's about time we saw that reversed. Definitely. So yes, I'm looking forward to this even more now that I've seen this clip. Partly because it does look like to me business as usual and that's yeah that's the that's the best thing you watch you going see they haven't you know the world hasn't shifted the, yes. you know, the volcanoes aren't opening dogs and cats aren't living together it's not mass hysteria it is the same old show it is doctor who doing what it does well terrifying the hell out of us and inspiring us to be better people and just with an extra level of possibility yeah and that's the big thing and finally opening up the representation, which is, you know, you know, just because it's always been a certain way doesn't mean it needs to stay that way. Yeah, and there's a team now of, well, we only met two of them, we didn't, it's funny, we didn't get to see um, Bradley Walsh on yeah. there. Yeah, because that clip was obviously um, put out by the BBC, and somebody just leaked it to the internet earlier than it was supposed to be wherever it was going to go. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's, that clip is so obviously, yeah, here's your introduction to oh, the new Doctor. Dark space and flashlights and, you know. Yeah, it didn't just leak by accident. It wasn't random. So, um, so that was put out. I suspect, and somebody has suggested this to me, that it was going to go on American television shows in the run-up to... Um, SDCC. Oh, yes. And it would be a case of it, on TV programs, they'd get an interview with somebody and they'd have a clip to play. Of course. Because that's going to be the big thing. Yeah, Castle yeah. are going to be there. Except Bradley. Bradley's not going over. Well, he's probably recording the chase. The chase. Got to get that chase done. Still doing the chase. Chase is a massive program in Britain. 
Well, so, we've got our own Australian version, and we get been, yeah. and we get the British one as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's amazing that he actually was able to work it out to come and do Doctor. Because that's with a different well. channel, isn't it? That's with, is that with ITV? ITV yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, he's tied into that, so obviously he. Well, I mean, he's a massive, massive star in Britain, so obviously he had the clout to say to the people who make the chase, "Look, if you want me to keep making the chase." then we've got to make fewer episodes so I can go off and do Doctor Who as well, because that was obviously something he wanted to do. And I love I, I love the story of Bradley Walsh as well, you know, who was a you know, comedian uh, first, and but he got a bit of respectability by doing Corrie or EastEnders. He did a... Corrie, yeah. He did a stint on Corrie, and that gave him a bit of clout. And people went, oh, no, he's not just a comedian. He can do a bit of the dramatic stuff. And, um, of course, he was in... Uh, Lord Lord Order, Order UK, yeah. which Chibnall was uh, in charge of, and so yeah. that gave him a bit of extra clout as well. So, I'll, you know, Doctor Who is always embracing, you know, people who don't follow the regular path, you know. He, yeah, well, go back Sil- to Billy Piper. Billy Piper as well, yes. and Sylvester McCoy. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, uh, John Pertwee as well. Yes, absolutely. So, or, and even right back at the start, William Hartnell was known as, you know, the comedic actor. Carry on, Sergeant, and oh, and Patrick Tran as yeah. well. Of course, he's done all sorts of the Hammer Horrors and all sorts of things. All of them. Um, so it's you know, and got some of the best work out of comedic performers like Catherine Tate did some of her best work. Yes, absolutely. Um, Matt Lucas just did incredible stuff as Nardole, in my opinion. And so, the thing about it is, Chibnall had worked closely enough with uh, Bradley Walsh beforehand to know that even if what he wanted from him in Doctor Who wasn't what he was doing on Law and Order. He'd have seen whether he was capable of doing it, just as he did with Jodie Whittaker after Broadchurch. Yeah. If you watch Broadchurch and then watch that 52-second clip, you barely recognise the actress. Yes. And yet Chris Chibnall knew she had that. And presumably, same goes for Bradley Walsh. I love the conversation that Jodie said, you know, they're on the set of Broadchurch, and so everyone knew that Chibnall was in charge, and she was, like, doing the whole... So um, uh, you need me to come down. I'll do a guest spot. I'll play a villain. It'll be great. And, and he's there going, well, I actually want you to come in an audition for the doctor. And she went, whoa, 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 what? I love that type of stuff. But of course, yeah. he's going to, this is, you know, this is what he's been wanting to do. And you build yourself up the people you know and the people you trust. Yes. And I take a lot of, as patently, he seems to like, I mean, things like Law and Order, and he also did United and the Great Train Robbery, you don't get a lot of choice because a lot of that is set up for you. Yeah. But you look at Broad Church and um, his Doctor Who episodes, for example, patently he likes putting women in the central roles yes. with the men around them and writing the women reacting to the situations and the other characters. And he also likes a, a bit of an ensemble cast as well. Oh. There it was, over the grates. Well, that was the cattle bread. We are on Dharma. Yes, so it seemed to be. When they said Chris Chibnall was taking over, I can't remember, I think I might even have said this on the podcast, but there was all this discussion and for months and months, if not like a year or so, people were saying, oh, we'll get somebody like Tennant. He'll go back to RTD's type tenant stroke Billy Piper relationship, and uh, that'll be the thing. And I was going, no, Tom's <laughs> right for a woman. Yeah. And Chris Chibnall's a writer who'll want to cast a woman. Of course. 
So I was saying this against popular opinion, and uh, I just, and they kept saying things like, what was the name of the actor whose name was linked to it? Oh, Big that time, um, uh, what's his name from? A blank, yes. Yeah, from uh, Death in Paradise. Chris. Chris. Oh, whatever. Yes. People will know who we're okay. talking about. They'll, they'll, they'll correct us. Yeah, people will be coming up with his name, and I was thinking, no, not. He's not going to be the doctor just because he's finished his other program <laughs> at the same time. He's not going to be the doctor. He's going to be a woman, and I was convinced of it. And then it happened. So actually, on the um, new show, uh, the Wimbledon thing, where hey, look at that. That's that. There you go. We've just seen the location for the Sontaran experiment. So yes, I was convinced it was going to be a woman, even when Chris Marshall's name, Chris Marshall, that's right, was being linked with it over and over and over again. Right, we are going to have to park up, and uh, well, we'll go for a little walk on a beautiful late June, sunny summer's day. Beautiful. Right, there are various car parks. This is the main one. There is actually, people don't realise, another one further up. Means you're not walking uphill, but you're walking across. I like the idea. Yeah, so let's go and see if we can find that one. Um, but yeah, I like the idea that Chibnall does like an ensemble cast. And he, he shows yes. that in Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, which yes. is my personal favourite Martin episode. I love the fact that it's all the cast there. You've got Brian as well, so you've got a range of ages and time periods. And as soon as Chibnall gets his own Doctor Who run, he's gone for that. Let's have. The Doctor, we're going to have four companions, we'll have an older companion as well, we'll yeah. have, you know, uh, mixed backgrounds as well, let's just, let's throw them all in there, and that works, it worked for, you know, the William Hartnell era when you had, you know, two school teachers, a, a granddaughter and, and the lead actor, so, yes, yes, so let's try it, let's bring all the personalities in. Yes, that was another one of my predictions for Chibnall, was that we'd get multiple companions. Right, we're going to have to turn this one off right now. But and we what may... an adventure it's been, JR. Yeah, well... Have you had an adventure, Caitlin? Yeah, I can see a horse. We're about 15 <laughs> minutes later than I thought we would be, but I'll tell you what, let's get down in this nice, quiet corner here. Hey, Caitlin. Yes? You being of the woman variety... Yeah, I, I can confirm. What is, uh, what is your opinion on the uh, announcement of the Doctor as a said woman? I mean, I think, as, as you know, you've pretty much summarised how I feel about it. I think it's a fantastic opportunity just to tell some stories that haven't been told before and see it through through a slightly new lens. But, um, you know, my understanding is that, it's exactly as you've both beautifully kind of summarised, is that, for me, the character doesn't need to be entrenched in, in either gender. Um, it's alien. Yeah, that's exactly right. As yeah. You know, if, if we accept that it could change, you know, in, in every other physical aspect, then, you know, why should that element of physicality change as well? Yeah. And it just gives us an opportunity to tell some new stories, which I think is really exciting. Right, on the way back, she's sitting in the front and you're sitting <laughs> in the back. She's far more articulate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd already done all of the beautiful analysis, so that's my sort of byline of how I feel about it. I think it's very exciting. Should we talk a bit of Star Wars then? Let's do it. Ah. Well, there's been so much going on. Have you seen Solo? Um, yes, we uh, we were doing, Caitlin and I were doing our um, 
our Harry Potter show, the first show we did together. So I normally would have gone to the midnight screening or the first session there was, but it was right back in the middle of our run. So I wanted to get the run out of the way. So we finished on the Saturday, um, and then the next Sunday we went up to uh, to go see it. And it was okay, though. I was very much keeping up to date with all the, the, the press yeah. about it. So I knew about you know Miller and Lord leaving, I knew about Run Howard being brought in, I knew about the extensive reshoots. So my expectations were low. Um, so I went and saw it, and it was, you know, it was fine. It was it wasn't anything spectacular. It didn't really push anything further with the franchise, yeah. and it kind of answered questions that we already knew or didn't really. Some of us didn't even really want to ask. But they're going, you don't really need to know all this type of stuff to become like the mystery of it. Um, I didn't mind that. Yeah, I put myself when I saw it. I put myself in the mind of like a ten-year-old. Yeah, and I was thinking if you were watching. And to sort of put it back into Doctor Who terms, if you're watching the five Doctors say, and you suddenly get the first Doctor and the second Doctor and the third Doctor, you want to know where those characters came from, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, well, the solo film is, apart from the fact that it's obviously made 40 years later, but it's a bit, watching the solo <laughs> film was a bit like going back and watching The Claws of Axos yeah. after you've seen the five Doctors. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I loved uh, Donald Glover was amazing as Lando. Um, uh, Chewbacca did it was was incredible. They they how they represented him was great. And I think Alton did okay. He wasn't anything. He wasn't horrible, but he wasn't anything spectacular. I think he worked best when he was with you know Chewbacca or yeah. Lando. The three of them have a really good chemistry and energy, and seemed a bit forced and awkward with him with Emily Clark, but. Um, See, I thought that was more down to her than down to him. Yeah, yeah. Because I thought, because you can see his chemistry with the others in the other scenes. Yes. And it was, yes, there, there was a lack of chemistry between her and him. So I think that's down to maybe miscasting her. Yeah. I don't think it's that she's a bad actress. I just, I, my impression was that she just wasn't right for that part. Exactly. Oh, well, it's, you know, shown in the other stuff she's done she's got amazing chemistry with yeah certain performers but yeah we just missed the mark there um but yeah so it was fine it was, it was fine I, I, there wasn't any need for any you know outright criticism of it but uh well the way I put it was that it was a bank holiday Star Wars movie something yeah. light that doesn't need your too much of your attention exactly I mean I out of all the new ones, I adored Rogue One. I, I oh, did you? I really liked that. I really enjoyed the tone of it and how it was all put together and the story being told. So that I really got into. I ah, see. That was my least favorite. Ah, there we go. Yeah, I did because I suppose in to come back to Doctor Who terms, I'm more of a terror of the Autons than a mind of evil. Right, kind of person. Because I adore Mind of Evil. I yeah. Well, see, I don't dislike Mind of <laughs> Evil, but if I had a choice between which would you put on at any given time, I would probably you know, the hidden stuff behind the bus here can't get out. I would be uh, inclined to put on Terror of the Autumns. Well, there you go. And this is what makes the world go round, JR. Well, exactly, yeah. And I'm not saying that I disliked any of them. 
I mean, I thought Rogue One was a very good film, but I for the other three. Okay. Where? What did you think of? Because I suppose we'll talk about the uh, news bursts and stuff. Yeah. And what it might all mean in a moment. But what did you think of the Last Jedi? Look, I'm, I was. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it now because there's so many people who have been done embarrassing stuff about their dislike of the film and have gone out. The trolling and stuff like that has been appalling, and I yeah. don't want to have any type of association oh, the with the petition. The, yeah, well, and you know, the petition to, to reshoot it, and also, you know, um, Kelly Marie Tran is now off all social media because yeah. of her sexist, racist trolling. Same with Daisy Ridley. That type of stuff is, um, yeah, not what Star Wars is about at all. But me personally, I, I was really excited about uh, Last Jedi, but I was really disappointed in the end. There were parts I liked. Uh, but parts I really didn't like. So, and I understand why people do adore it and love it, and I've got nothing against that at all. But for me, it, yeah, it, it didn't connect with me. So, see, I think it all comes down to this because I've been listening to Star Wars podcasts for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, which I've never done because, as I said off air, and I've said it on the podcast before, I was kind of not really a Star Wars fan. Yeah, big fan of the first two films when I was very small when they came out. Mm. And then it's just been sort of a moderately interested spectator <laughs> since. <clears throat> but listening to these podcasts, they talk a lot about, oh, and I can't remember the name of the author now. Some author's written a book about Star Wars through the prism of the classic, um, oh, what's they call it? The, the story where it's archetypes and heroes. Yeah, yeah, and, and mythology and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And I... And see, my perspective on it is, when George Lucas made the very first Star Wars, that was very ostentatiously about the mythology and the archetype. Oh yes, very much so. Because it was harkening back to the Flash Gordon serials. Very much so. And basically he was just making an update of the Flash Gordon serials. But my perspective on it now is, you can only do that for so long. Yes. There's only so much of that you can do. Because if you don't move on from archetypes, eventually people are just going to say, right, you've told this story. Yeah. What is there other than these archetypes to sort of give me an emotional connection with it? And so, and I'm in the right lane now, I think. That's where I am, yeah. And so with the modern films, what they've done is said, right, we have to move it on and we have to turn these archetypes into real people as it were. Yeah. And I think the big issue with The Last Jedi seems to have been that because The Force Awakens was not a remake but essentially went back to basics Mm. and they stuck more with the archetypes although in the performances of people like Daisy Ridley and Finn they brought their humanity out more. Yeah. But I think Last Jedi was perhaps, for a lot of people, too much of a step on. Do you know what I'm saying? It was. It, it definitely was, you know, visually and storytelling-wise, a bold. There were massive decisions, bold steps, um, and that type of stuff was always going to polarize audiences. Yeah. And and for a franchise that has been around over 40 years and you know however many films, you are going to, you know. Do you keep on making the same films, or do you try and discover new ground? And what 
you know, they they were willing to make that decision to go. Whatever we do, we're going to make bold decisions, and we're going to lose some people, but we're going to you know get new people in as well. Yeah. So, um, and I, I I appreciate that. It's just uh, for me, it didn't those those steps didn't blend with me with the truth of some of the characters. So we're talking about Luke. Yeah, Luke in particular, and I mean. I'll, like some, some people there going, oh, I, you know, I, I hated how Snoke was killed off and then we didn't see his backstory. I went, I love that. Yeah, I love the yeah. fact they flipped that round and went, no, you, you know what? All your theories doesn't matter because we, you know, you won't find out anymore. I like those type of changes. Um, but yeah, it seems, it, it seems that they are still working their way through what they want to tell the stories as well. Like, especially with the changes of directors with Rogue One, yeah. the complete, you know, uh, rechange of everything with Solo. Um, now there's, you know, discussions and rumors about, like, the, the script for uh, Episode Nine has obviously had to be changed because of the passing of Carrie Fisher. Yeah. But that, that wasn't even finalized until a later on point. So they went into this trilogy with not really that much of an idea. Like, Ryan Johnson had a complete, you know, blank slate. He did whatever he wanted as opposed to where they saw the story going. So I find it quite fascinating with the amount of money and the amount of love and support behind this franchise to be that, you know, uh, making it up as they go along. Well, I get the impression that what she wants to do, Kathleen Kennedy, yeah. we're obviously talking about, is move <laughs> Star Wars into a place where because they've been left with this legacy where everybody expected them to finish George Lucas's trilogy of trilogies, right? Yes. So it seems to me that what they're doing is they've said, right, we've got to start off with this last trilogy and then we can do the things we want to do. Yeah, yeah. So I would imagine, because we've got Ryan Johnson doing his own follow-up yes. trilogy, whatever it is, and the Game of Thrones people apparently are doing and one they're as doing well. one of their own as well. Um, you've got John Favreau doing a TV series. So all these things will be authored, and it's just this trilogy of films that's unauthored, as yes. it were. And that seems to be the issue, doesn't it? It does. It does seem to be a case of, you know, you brought us back into this world with these characters, but you're, you're wanting to go off and tell your own stories, which we respect, but they're kind of haven't really decided to get how to get the balance yeah, perfectly yeah. right. Um, so I'm all for you know, introducing new characters, new worlds, and going beyond the, the Skywalker stories, because Star Wars is more than just that. As, you know, Rebels, yeah, yeah. Rebels is incredible. I, it was an amazing series about you know, characters that we just learned of at that time. Well, George Lucas built a universe and then told a story about a family within that universe. Yeah. And now the Disney Star Wars films are going to be eventually, once they get this first sort of six or seven out of their system. <laughs> because, I mean, this is the other point. People are saying, why do the Star Wars story films need to be about characters we already know? Yeah. And to me, it's like, well, the Star Wars story films are supposed to be about side characters or side issues or whatever yeah but you can only work with the characters that you've already got exactly so of course the first sort of three or four or five star wars story films are going to be about characters from the george lucas universe 
because Disney haven't had time to build their own universe yet. No, especially because they took so many risks with Last Jedi, and then the next one we get is six months later with Solo, and was notoriously so safe. Yeah. So within the space of you know six months, we've had two films, one radically new and one you know painfully safe. It's very interesting that yeah, they're yeah. going well. We, we can't break the mold with you know the backstory, but the future story we can do whatever the hell we want with. So, yes. yeah. um, and especially with rumors going around now that they're holding off on the Star Wars stories because of the <laughs> poor reception that Solo got. I wonder, because I mean this was a rumor that had come out and somebody had repeated from Lucasfilm headquarters or whatever. Yeah, and then there was a statement that came out like 24, 48 hours later and the statement that Lucasfilm made was so ambiguous because <laughs> the rumour was that they put things on hold Yeah. and then the statement was only no we've got a load of things coming up but it didn't actually say we've not put anything on hold yeah exactly I got the impression that because obviously things like I mean I I don't know how true these things are, but people seem pretty certain that there's going to be a Boba Fett film and uh, an Obi-Wan Kenobi film. They're the two ones that have been yeah, yeah. talked about the most within the last couple of years about a you know, Kenobi and Boba Fett film, and you hear rumours about directors or writers involved, but yeah. nothing's been officially announced. Well, you've got to say, given all these rumours, you'd assume that there's a script. Yes. And you'd assume that locations have been scouted, maybe, or at least some thought put into it, and a lot of pre-production and development. In other words, they've spent so much money already yeah. on Obi-Wan Kenobi and Boba Fett. If there was a discussion in Lucasfilm about holding off on things, I'm assuming that's more about when they release them rather than whether they make them. Exactly. And that, I mean, that, and that's the thing they haven't even announced when whether they've started filming episode 9 and that's due out Christmas next year yeah so they're going clock's ticking you know we heard oh there's a script done and it's been taken to Lucasfilm but we've heard nothing about principal photography being filmed we know nothing and they started Last Jedi filming pretty much a couple of months after uh, Force Awakens came out yeah it's now been six about six six months and We've heard nothing about locations, about filming, about casting, or anything like that yet. And we've got, you know, 18 months to go. Well, then this is the really odd situation, is that because they brought Solo out in the summer, I mean, uh, the way I gathered it was that the plan was to move Last Jedi to the summer before it came out. Yeah. And then it got put back by six months. So my assumption was that the idea was that Last Jedi would follow six months after Rogue One. And then Solo would be a year after Last Jedi. And then there would be summer releases from that point, staggered once a year. But because Last Jedi got put back, the sensible thing to do would have been to put Solo back as well. And if they moved to the summer releases, do that with the next saga film. Because the saga films are the big ones, the tentpole ones, yes. aren't they? Well, that's the thing. The Star Wars films have always come out in the summer, but now... Yeah. The summer franchise, the summer blockbusters are filled with, you know, Marvel and uh, those type of stuff. Oh, and especially this year with Jurassic World. Yes. 
But Solo was always going to have to be released in the summer because Disney's big Christmas hit for this year is Mary, Mary Poppins 2, and there's no way they were going to move that. That was their, That's their big, you know, they're think, hoping this can start yeah. a new franchise that's all run by them. I think that's a bit of a, an error because I don't see, I mean, obviously there's some, but I don't see a massive amount of crossover between people going to see Star Wars and people going to see Mary Poppins. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and the Christmas release... It's not just a single weekend. There's about three weekends around Christmas where you can release movies. Exactly. Fairly reasonably. Stick one on the first weekend and one on the last and you've got two weeks in between anyway. And especially like Star Wars usually comes out a week or so before Christmas or even like, you know, or like even the Bond films come out like the last week of November. Yeah, and yeah. So you can then do Mary Poppins on Boxing Day or, yeah. or, yeah, or Christmas Day as they do in the States. Um, so I think they shot themselves in the foot. Yeah, it did seem a little bit like from rumours I've heard that they knew it was trouble production, they knew all this type of stuff. So Solo was kind of thrown to the walls and they went, well, yeah. let's just scratch this up to experience. We've already invested two films worth of money into it. We well, yeah. They were never going to make back anything because you know the budget just blew out because they were making two movies. One book yeah. by Lord and Miller and another one by um, Ron Howard. So they pretty much went, no matter what we're going to do, this is going to lose us a lot of money, so let's just get it out and start from scratch again. Because they made enough money off Last Jedi that they're not really in a position where... They're not worried about yeah. it too much. And they knew, and people have... A lot of fans of Matt on our podcast brought this up a couple of times, and I'm scratching my head when he does. He's saying it costs so much money to make it's not made its money back, it's a failure. But to me, no, because it costs two films worth of money to make, yeah. Disney aren't factoring in how much it costs to make against how much money it makes. The factor will be how much it should have cost to make and how much it would have cost to make if they made, say, a sequel. Because this is the thing, I'm, I want to, I'm assuming there was supposed to be a trilogy of solo films and I want to see the other solo films. Well, yeah, it's said 10 years before Last Hope, so there's enough room to, to tell more than just yeah that first story, where it seemed to be like lip service. Let's do the Castle Run. Let's mention going yeah. to, to Jabba the Hutt. And I assume that was what the next one would be. Would be. No, I think the third one is Jabba the Hutt. Oh, yeah. i tell you what I told the other guys on the podcast, because you won't have heard this, although the listeners will, but so I'll repeat it quick. I think the first thing you do in the second film is he goes to Jabba the Hutt and does a successful job for him, yeah, yeah. builds a relationship with Jabba the Hutt, and then at the end of the third film, something happens to Bray and break that relationship down. That's that. That sounds like a good story. That sounds like good storytelling as well. And that's what I wanted to, well, whether it was that or whether it was something else, that's what I want to see because now that we're invested in this trilogy, in these characters, I want to see what happens to them. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a shame because Star Wars was my real first obsession, really, when I was, I, I saw the first film, when I was, it was the first film I was allowed to stay up late and watch really, when right. I was a kid, yeah. it, was, it was the first time it was shown on local television, um, the first film I saw on the big screen was Jedi, so this was, this sparked my imagination, this is the film series that got me into wanting to do acting and all that type of stuff, so it's very much tied to that nostalgia yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you know, you come in and out of love of it. Obviously, through the you know the most of the eighties and and nineties, it wasn't around. So 
getting into Doctor Who was a good way to keep my nerd credentials uh, <laughs> secured. But then when the the prequels came, when the prequels came back, that was a mixed bag as well. So your your, your perception of this franchise that you love changes. Yeah. And it's the it's the same now. I'm a lot more jud- not judgmental, but a lot more measured with my expectations of Star Wars films, and also my commitment to it just by the fact that they're doing so much now and whether it's actually necessary or not and what's the purpose the reason for it is it to tell a good story to entertain people or is it to you know keep the you know keep the money clicking along well yes well that's the thing Disney have bought the franchise and obviously they need to make that money back exactly but well, I mean they don't need to make that money back as Disney have got but you don't you don't you don't spend out Deliberately to lose the money, exactly. so they want to make that money back, but they haven't brought that bought that franchise because I mean people say things like Disney and they forget that it's actually the people who work at Disney who make the decisions. Yes, human beings, and the reason they bought Star Wars isn't because oh it's a great big money maker. The reason they bought Star Wars is probably because there's a great amount of Star Wars fans working at Disney and they wanted to bring it back. Yeah, and they wanted to do their thing with it. Yeah, so. Um, yes, making money is obviously, you know, they're not going to keep making Star Wars films if they don't make money, but that's not the, necessarily their first priority. Exactly. So I, I think a lot of love has gone into these films. I think the trouble is, I guess, is that every fan loves different parts and different aspects and loves it in a different way. And it becomes such a personal thing and how it connects with you at the time, just like with Doctor Who. Yeah, People yeah. have, you know, railed against the casting of Jodie Whittaker and they've given me quite personal reasons I've had a number of people go no it needs to be a male character because he became like a father figure to me he was like this because I was at this position in my life and I'm going I can't argue with that and I'm not gonna I'm gonna respect that it connects with you in that personal way much like it connects to me in my own personal way and so so we're always going to invest what it means to us and it's very hard to look upon it in any other way because it's how you see it. And the problem then is the person who's making the film, he has a similar love, but for different aspects, <laughs> exactly. or in a different way. So he's not going to make, despite the fact that he's making it with just as lo- much love as the person watching it has, he's going to make a different film from the one they would have. And it's very much a Ryan Johnson film, Last Jedi. If you've seen any of his other stuff, Brick is a masterpiece. Looper is a flawed, uh, flawed film, but it's a very, very... You know, daring, challenging, brave uh, sci-fi film, um, and you know the same is with Last Jedi. I, it's it's a Ryan Johnson film, and Ryan Johnson makes big, bold decisions uh, and really makes you question the notion of something, especially when it comes to science fiction. Brick was like dismantling what the film noir yeah. genre was. Uh, Looper was really working about your expectations of time travel and science fiction in that way. Same with Last Jedi. He, he, he looked at the fundamentals of what a Star Wars film is and deconstructed it, broke it up and wanted to look at it in a different way, which is you know, completely true to his vision with all his films. And I think he's, I don't know, to me, I thought he met a nice halfway house and that he's deconstructed it, but then he reconstructed it mm. and put it back. It's one of those ones... I think Stephen Moffat does this in Doctor Who, and I don't think people appreciate that when he deconstructs things, he then puts them back together exactly as they were before, <laughs> but having examined all the pieces. 
And I thought that's what Ryan Johnson essentially did with The Last Jedi. I think one of the things people were disappointed was, this is the film where Luke comes back. Yeah. Actually, people forget where Ryan Johnson took Luke was where J.J. Abrams had left him at the end of The Force Awakens. Exactly. Ryan Johnson didn't have a huge amount of choices <laughs> of what things he could do with Luke. Exactly. Because we'd already had the stuff about, well, Luke was responsible for Kylo Ren. Luke's torn yeah. himself away to the furthest reaches. for 15, yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Ryan Johnson didn't make those decisions. But the point I was going to make was... Um, <clears throat> the point I was going to make was that Luke comes back, essentially, at the start of The Last Jedi... But, because this is only a trilogy, I think you need to have a film in there where Luke is a force ghost, like Ben was throughout the last oh, day. Yeah. I'd be surprised if, if Hamill is not on set for episode yeah. 9. But because of that, I think that Ryan Johnson didn't have a choice as to whether to kill Luke off or not, either. From, well, yeah, it, it all depends on where, obviously we don't know, because I'm hearing that was, Johnson and Kennedy particularly wanted um, uh, Luke to be killed off, and that's a, a reason why Colin Trevorrow was was moved off episode nine is because he wanted Luke to be alive. All right, and so they, there was a clash of creativity there, and they went, no, no, no. Kennedy and Ryan said, no, we've got to kill him. That's a part of his arc for what we want from the story. Because you have to have a film where he's a force ghost. I think that's a given. I think that's necessary because Luke's story is a reflection of the stories of Yoda and. Obi Wan can open the Yeah, story. and that was a part I particularly liked about Last Jedi. Though. Bringing back uh, Yoda. Yoda was great. Uh, a lot of people criticised that, and I've gone, well, you know, uh, there's not much. There's parts of the film I didn't like, but that part I loved. Having Frank there, having yeah. Frank and Luke chatting, and having Yoda be cheeky and clever and, and, and pushing things forward. I did like the whole concept of, you know, the Force doesn't need to be so black and white. It doesn't need to be good and evil. There's more to it than that. Yeah. Well, the thing about the midichlorians in um, the prequels was that there's a line in there. The midichlorians are in everybody. It's just whether you can access and use them. Really. Exactly. And to me, the Force is like, so you have Force users. It's just that people are able to access. Yeah. And so I think the whole thing with Daisy Ridley's character and the thing that they've done with Luke and the others is that it's kind of, you know, there are so many religions that believe in God, but say Christianity has a particular idea of what God is. So, and then other religions will see it in other ways. So to me, being a Jedi kind of reflects that, in that everybody, or not everybody, but all the different peoples believe in there to be a God. Yes. So... All the people in the Star Wars universe can have access to the Force, but the Jedi's then become like the Christians in that being a Jedi is their specific idea of how you use the Force. Exactly, exactly. And even like yeah, even Kylo Ren is showing he is not following the Sith. Yes, doctrine as well. He's cre he's gone off on his own. He's doing his own version of it. It's not purely evil, uh, purely good. Um, but he's not wanting to follow the strict dogma yeah, of, yeah. The, of the Sith religion. So, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen that show. 
Well, I'm hoping that anybody listening to this will have. <laughs> so I like those type of steps forward. Uh, it's Yeah, I'm just fascinated to see that there's been no release of any of what happens next and whether they actually start a film because they're running out of time. I wonder if that's a deliberate sort of idea because of the fuss that there was over Last Jedi mm. and because of the... Um, you know, sort of disappointment, I suppose, of Solo, which I don't think really is, which I think has been blown out of proportion a bit. Well, that's the thing. You know, any other film that opens on like 85 or 90 million is fine, but yeah. the expectations of a Star Wars film is to, you know, yeah, open yeah. more than that. So, and the amount of money spent into a two films worth to actually shoot it. So, obviously, they're working with a bigger margin of failure. But anything Disney sort of announce or any news that escapes now becomes either, oh, you know, fans will look at it and they will say either, oh, this is a reaction to something or, oh, this is a consolidation of something. Yeah. But it all gets lost in that sort of post-Last Jedi, post-Solo thing. Whereas if they stay quiet for six or 12 months, that has time to die down a bit more. And that's so what the, when the news comes out, it will just be news again. Well, exactly in reaction, and that's what Who does very well. You know, um, I did really agree with Moffat, you know, splitting seasons in half, so getting like a six month break in between season, um, season six and seven. But um, but I do enjoy, like end a season, then take a bit of a break, and then come back after about eight or nine months with a full season, like they did in between Capaldi's second and third season. So you build that expectation as opposed to just. Yeah, yeah. You know, because fans uh, can be the worst part of any type of TV show. They're going, well, we get it every year at this time, so we're going to get it the same all the time. Take it for granted. Yeah. And the thing about taking something for granted is you don't just take its presence for granted, but you take what it is for granted. Yes. So you can only reinvent if you are already subverting expectations. Well, that's something Russell T said on one of the commentaries or something. You know, no matter how much Doctor Who fans or Doctor Who prides itself on, change and being able to change in different styles of, you know, it's been out for the last 55 years because of its ability to change. We, what we fundamentally love most about Doctor Who is the stuff that doesn't change. Yeah. The, the, the TARDIS is always looking the same, it always sounds the same, yeah. and always, you know, the sonic screwdriver is always there in some way, shape or form, the, the certain villains, the certain beats of stories. So no matter how much we pride ourselves on going, well, it's such a revolutionary show, it changes all the time. It's those fundamental things that are always constant yes. that we as fans, you know, would be completely, you know, when they tried it in the 80s with Colin Baker, the, the chameleon circuit actually worked again, so it could be anything. Um, that's a great, bold decision as a, as a show to move it forward. They went, but, but no, no yeah, it, yeah. it has to be the, the, the police box. That's, that's what it is doesn't have to be it's a it's 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 shown in the show that it can change into anything so it's the fundamentals zone yep and that's what people like about the biggest fundamental of doctor who is man turns up in box high plains drifter style monsters are invading man gets rid of monsters mm -hmm. and it's when you tell so this the ones that are about the Stephen moffat ones that people moan most about are the ones that were least man turns up in box and Hurts monsters, and there's a lot more of that. You know that almost meta, uh, postmodern exploration of who that Russell T brought in. So the mythology of the Doctor 
became a part of it, so that became sort of like a reflection of fandom. Yeah, yeah. Because they never did that back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. He was just a guy who showed up. But they brought in that whole, you know, culture's talk of the Doctor, you know, he's the oncoming storm. And Moffat used to love exploring that with, you know, stuff like Listen, and he liked going a bit more, you know. And I think that, and some fans complain about that, and they say you shouldn't do that. But I think the fact that it was off air for 15 years and has come back, because there was a period where it wasn't on the air, it can't come back without that self-knowledge that you don't necessarily gain when it's continuous. Yeah. When it's continuous, you're just doing it. You're not thinking about what you're doing. But when it goes off for 15 years, you're thinking about what you're doing when you bring it back. Of course. And you can't help yourselves. So I think the modern program is not at fault stuff, but I think that's the intelligent way to do it now, because the audiences, even the ones who haven't seen the classic series, know it happened. Exactly, and there's so many beautiful references that Russell T and Moff could do quite well of, you know, words in the zeitgeist of Hoodum that we know now, now become a part of the show, so in the day of the Doctor, for one of the Doctors to say never cruel or cowardly, yeah. it was always, you know, Uncle Terry's description of the Doctor. You can, you know, that's self-referential, but it doesn't exclude anybody. It's a perfect representation of what that character is. So using the words of the people who put the show on in the actual show is um, a great advancement of um, the program. Right. And at that point, then, I think that's a good place to leave it. Well done. Well done, JR. Uh, Your tour which may still be going on. I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, but give us the uh, website for anybody who may still be able to catch you. If, uh, if this comes, this. Yeah, if this comes yeah. out of time, pop onto uh, my website, robloyd.com.au. Uh, links are there on my page to go to all the venues that I'm performing at, and uh, hopefully one's near you. Um, when you hear this, it's still uh, running while uh, I'm in town. <laughs> so, um. Caitlin's still in the back. She's falling asleep because we were talking Star Wars. Nonsense. I was enjoying letting it walk over me. <laughs> well, thank you, Caitlin, and thank you, Rob, thank for you, joining me. Thank you so much. In this blue box car pass. <laughs> uh, but until next time, I was JR. I was Rob Lloyd. Caitlin. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs>